The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Good evening, everybody, uh, which also includes afternoon um, here in California, where I'm joining from. So uh, my name is Seicho. I'm one of the senior students. And uh, you might notice that I am not our uh, priorly scheduled speaker, Fugan Hoshi, who unexpectedly uh, was unable uh, to, to join today. So uh, word went out and here I am and delighted to be together this way. And also uh, to enact just in that whole unexpected um, situation. Uh, this is what we do, you know, mutual support, meeting the moment, and here we are. Everything's included. And that really bridges to what I'd like to um, explore together today, which is uh, the power of the Bodhisattva. And even as I say that, I can hear myself a kind of nudging you know, from, from almost from behind, like the ancestors are reminding bodhisattvas because the bodhisattva is, um, is also the whole. And uh, the way the whole expresses itself is also in our individuality. So as bodhisattvas, what is this power? Uh, what is it that we're doing. And fortunately, our study text for this Ango, uh, Shadoka, offers us uh, not only clues, but also cues as to what that is. And one of the things um, that's been really a delight for me is revisiting this uh, really prose poem, or as it's uh, sometimes translated as the Song of Enlightenment, uh, because about a decade ago, it was our Ango text when, uh, when I was Shuso. And uh, that's the way it is. You know, all our, all our texts come around. You stick around long enough and, you know, we're studying it again. Isn't that wonderful? And, and now Hango and, and all our teachers are, are shining new light on it. Actually, we all are. And, and that light is um, the power, the power of the Dharma. So what is that? Well, one of the things that's been fascinating to me uh, for a while now uh, in revisiting our, our uh, ancestral teachings is that when I first came to them, I was thinking of them as timeless truths that have been passed down to us. So I, uh, I didn't necessarily put any kind of uh, prioritization for the context of those t- 
teachings, you know, particularly cultural contexts, like what was happening in their surroundings? Uh, what were the values of that time and place, um, communities? Uh, what was going on in, so to speak, uh, the climate, the natural world, uh, urban, rural, uh, all kinds of considerations like that. I just tended to, to come to them as, as just this timeless truth, as if it was sort of hanging in midair, you know? And now uh, when I revisit it and, and, and turns out revisiting this particular song is that I can't help but attune to the cultural context, even if some of it I'm coming to from imagination based on what I've read or gleaned or heard. Uh, and, and of course, the reason that that's coming up is because I'm, I'm very motivated in terms of how it relates to our cultural context right now, which there's a lot going on, right? So one of the contexts that's interesting to me is that the, um, the culture of having these uh, Chan or Zen teachings uh, that emerged in this same era as the one we're studying, more or less, um, you know, there may be uh, some centuries involved, I'm not exactly sure, uh, only because I only started preparing yesterday. So, which, and the advantage of that uh, is that you can only work with the time that you have, right? I mean, anybody who's crammed to do anything has a sense of that. Um, and you have to let go and just what's there. And one of the things that came up for me was, oh, right, song. So there's the song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, right, which we, we chant during Sashin a lot. And there's uh, Hakuin's song of Zazen. Uh, there's uh, Shitu's song of the grass hut. Right? So there was something already in uh, the expression of that culture that valued uh, how it uh, saw a song or heard a song, which might be a little different than um, what I might think of as song in our era. Um, and yet, one of the things that I noticed differently in coming to Shadoka was uh, this sense of, you know, it's kind of long. And Right from the first line, there's this sense of wandering within it. Uh, and so uh, what happened for me uh, yesterday as I was doing this, again, this natural uh, inclination was just to lightly brush through it. And then you've probably had this experience in, in one read or another or maybe even listening to a song that just without trying, you know, something pops, 
something just lands and, and particularly you can feel it in the body. Uh, and, and you might not really understand exactly why, but it, it stops you, uh, you know, in a helpful way. And then if, if we're lucky, we, you know, we get curious about it and explore it. It's kind of like a light touch. And that happened for me. And this was the verse that, that uh, stopped me. It speaks in silence, in speech, you hear its silence. The great way has opened and there are no obstacles. If someone asks, what is your sect? And how do you understand it? I reply, the power of tremendous prajna. So what if we just listen to that again and just notice where in your body it lands and 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 it might land as ease but it might land as a kind of creative tension which which is equally interesting i think so here we go it speaks in silence in speech you hear its silence the great way has opened and there are no obstacles if someone asks what is your sect and how do you understand it i reply the power of tremendous prajna. And it's interesting that it, uh, it leads with silence interwoven with speech. Uh, it reminds me of something, uh, a question I asked um, uh, Roshi, Enkyo, we have so many Roshis <laughs> to say that, or I like um, sometimes how she says, Roshi E. Um, that years ago, when we were first starting, uh, you know, on the other side of this ango, we have Urban Sashin, that um, at some point during the day, we were going to go out into the urban environment, uh, we could do this in person. And so I asked her, well, how are we going to maintain silence? I mean, we're going to step out into the whole marketplace just coming right at you. What, what, how are we going to do that? And she said something like, um, uh, we always maintain inner silence. And sometimes inner silence uh, is outer silence, like often when we're in the zendo. But it, it also includes, uh, and now I'm, I'm lapsing into um, how it landed with me, not literally what she might have said, right? which is sometimes it just expresses itself as what's called for in the moment, which includes speech. So, so what uh, we flow with, what our expression really is, is expressing that inner silence in a way that's appropriate to the moment.
really helpful. And as usual, uh, really practical, you know, immediate. And so when I, I, I read this line, it speaks in silence and speech, you hear it's silence. That's, that's what, um, that's how I hear it right, right now, which is, is helpful because, you know, like you, I need to, when we're done here, be able to, to meet the next thing, which, you know, unexpected, whatever it might be. And then at, at the uh, close of this phrase, it's really interesting because it says, if someone asks, what is your sect? How do you understand it? I reply, the power of tremendous prajna. And it's really interesting that that's not translated here. You know, how come? Well, we have a tradition of doing that too. You know, we don't always translate samadhi. We don't actually always translate prajna, you know, like in the Heart Sutra that we chant all the time. Um, and, and what that does is that, uh, you know, you chant it over and over again, not quite sure what that is, and yet something comes forward you know, as we're chanting together, as we're really uh, studying that through repetitive saying it. Well, another thing that I've, I've come around to is, uh, you know, it is translated, of course, in different ways. Some people translate it as wisdom or wisdom beyond wisdom, or uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh translates it as understanding. So his translation, for instance, of the Heart Sutra is the heart of understanding. Interesting. Um, but really, uh, the the Heart Sutra itself, you know, the Mahaprajna Paramita is really the pithy uh, synthesis of this massive collection of Mahayana um, expression called the Prajna Paramita Sutras. And, you know, you got to wonder why so much? And, and also, um, how so pithy? You know, you might, as I have, when you're chanting the Heart Sutra, think, wow, you know, it's a long sutra. It's like, what, what the heck, you know? Uh, but actually, it's incredibly pithy and direct. And, and what's important here is that this uh, wisdom or this understanding, it's not, um, it's not just some kind of yeah, let's understand, or yeah, there's this wisdom. There's just this wisdom of the universe. It's actually, I mean, you could say that, but really what, what, what that is expressing is the particular wisdom of, um, of the Bodhisattva way, which is a recognition of our interrelatedness that I am not separate from you. And when you and I meet in that shared understanding, something flows. And you could say that that flow is an energy. 
And that energy, you know, just like in, um, in physics, that energy, that, that potential difference, as it's sometimes called, the energy here and the energy there, you and I, that difference. Times, the flow, like current, becomes power. So we can't have that power without a real recognition, a real touching into our interrelatedness. And that's what this understanding or this wisdom really is. It's not random. And it, we can't fake it, which is kind of a relief. But we can enter it through the power of, of this song, of the cadence, of the rhythm, of, of the flow. And, um, you know, all of that would be well and good. But still, how does it help us, you know, in our time right now? And I think one of the ways it helps us is that, you know, um, these are difficult times. And there are a lot of times when our sense of values really feel challenged. And not just individually, but collectively. And there's actually, um, there's actually a term for this, which is called moral injury. And it's a particular kind of suffering that we get into when uh, the stakes are high and something doesn't go according to plan and there's great harm that results, and we feel a tremendous conflict between what our um, espoused values are and how we behave or others behave, and we witness that. And there's a great pain, and there's also a great betrayal, an experience of a betrayal of trust, of, um, of meaning, of purpose. And it can bring up, you know, incredibly intense feelings like shame and grief and outrage and all kinds of stuff. And this is, you know, this is happening. This is happening in our hospitals in the wake of the pandemic, you know, as, and also in the ambulances, EMTs and doctors and nurses just encountering what they never imagined they would have to encounter and decisions they would have to make about life and death still, still in our public health crisis. And it's happening, uh, you know, in our mass incarceration systems of really looking at a culture of saying, well, we all have individual choice, but do we really? I mean, we do, but that's really related to, um, Uh, the, the conditions in our society that actually limit choice 
and create the, you know, the, um, the pipeline that imprisons. So in just, you know, the last uh, minute or so, I just want to say that this very week, I'm really uh, newly inspired because I went to a one-day, very powerful conference called For the Healing of the Nation, Understanding Moral Injury in the Wake of the Pandemic. And there, I learned about incredible organizations and efforts, very wide spectrum, to actually um, engage all these different cultures and context, some of which I just named. Um, and one of the organizations I learned about is called GRIP, which I believe stands for Guiding Rage into Power, uh, works with the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated at San Quentin, which is out here in the Bay Area. And, um, and one of the remarkable things, first of all, I love the name, right, um, that they talked about is really uh, recontextualizing this, this, this thing around individual choice and collective choices and moving from shame to genuine remorse to restorative justice. And I was really encouraged by the um, recontextualizing of rage. There's even a term, moral outrage, right? And, and who hasn't felt it these days, right? So in, in closing, I just wanna in, invite you, you know, one more time, just to see if it's possible right now, just to see, is there somewhere that's, got tension for you, you know, a kind of live tension. And even if you're just imagining it, to imagine the power in that, like, you know, almost like you're, you're harnessing it. And it's got a momentum. And now, you know, just imagine each of us has that, is really bringing that forward. And that when you move in the world, you have all that power to work with. And to remember, to remind one another, as we do every time we show up here, in silence as well as in speech, but that is a particular power, the power of the bodhisattva, the awakening being to express that wisdom, that heart of understanding that we belong to each other. And because we belong to each other, we naturally not only have a responsibility, but we actually bring that forward. So you don't have to work so hard. You just have to keep showing up. We just keep showing up. And it, that marvelous it, 
comes forth. What a relief, what a blessing as it is to, to see you all and continue.